Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi, it's David. Today's episode is the second in a new five-part series here on Stories of Our Times, hosted by my colleague Andrew Billen. It's published every Thursday and follows a bitter dispute at one of the oldest, most prestigious university colleges in the world. Last time on The Feud. Martin came from a fairly ordinary background. My father had gone to work on the Liverpool docks. There were a lot of dynamic forces that were passed on from generation to another. It encourages a kind of sense of entitlement or impunity on the part of those who belong. It does betray a certain expectation that the Dean would be a certain sort of person. If you wanted to get rid of the Dean, wouldn't you be in trouble with the King? Christchurch were actually appointing somebody that they wanted. I recall the college sending out some kind of notice to everybody because it it had splashed all over the press. There is perhaps nothing that captures the topsy-turvy world of Oxford quite like Alice in Wonderland. And so one day recently, I decided to watch the famous 1950s Disney version for mm, research purposes, you see. The strange tale of the little girl who goes down the rabbit hole seems to parallel the story I'm telling now. Would you like a little more tea? Well, I haven't had any yet, so I can't very well take more. Tea parties, nonsensical arguments, cause her off with their heads. Perhaps it's because Alice in Wonderland was a product of this very same universe. Its author, Lewis Carroll, after all, was a Christchurch academic, and he wrote the book for an Alice, who was the daughter of the then Dean of Christchurch. Something uh, seems to be troubling you. Uh, won't you tell us all about it? Start at the beginning. Yeah. Well, we started the series at the beginning when all was going well for the new dean, Martin Percy. But in this episode, things at the Oxford College are about to take a sharp downward turn. And I'm going to have to tear myself away from this delightful film to tell you all about it. See how the trouble you've started? Which is a shame. I was really rather enjoying it. Move down, move down, move down. The squabbling is about to begin. And it's about to get very nasty indeed amongst the clerics and the academics who run this revered institution. And when an institution goes to war, someone has to pay for it. 
You're listening to The Feud, a podcast series brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Andrew Billen, a journalist at The Times. This is part two. Immoral, scandalous or disgraceful. So many things have happened in this feud that I can't possibly begin to tell you all the ins and outs. But I'm going to try my best to include the ones that I think are key. So here goes. Christmas 2016 was a bleak season for Martin Percy and his family. Martin's brother-in-law had died of cancer in early December. His funeral was held a few days after Christmas. And being New Year, Christchurch was quiet. There were few students around. The Percy family returned to the deanery that afternoon. We had uh, had obviously a hard day. And I came back with Emma and our boys and got a phone call from the Porter's Lodge to say that there was a, a kerfuffle on the other side of the street involving one of our students. And there was nobody else around to deal with this. When I got outside, there were three ambulances, several police, a couple of police cars, and I made my way over to where this had taken place. A Christchurch student, high on drugs and alcohol, had stabbed a male acquaintance with a bread knife and then thrown a jam jar and a laptop at him. And I think it was probably in the region of about seven or eight o'clock where we had finally got the police to cordon off the student accommodation as a crime scene. Paramedics and the police had taken her away. Martin knew the student. She was ambitious, a high achiever. She had uh, published, she had uh, written. She uh, was highly presentable and extremely engaging, and I'd, I'd talked with her before. The police kept the young woman in custody overnight, but the next day... I got another phone call from the Porter's Lodge to say that she had broken into student accommodation this time, badly cut her foot on the glass. On two days in December that year, you're the only person who can deal with this situation and you're the top man. It is Christmas. People obviously need holidays, they need breaks, but actually at the same time we should have had a system in place where the censors had delegated their authority or left their phone numbers. Censors? I'll explain in just a second. Or left instructions or other people to deal with difficulties in the case of their absence. Nothing had been done. I'm not, I'm not best pleased, it's fair to say. Christchurch say they did have a system in place that ensured a senior member would be available over Christmas holidays in case there was an emergency, and that the dean often takes on this role. They also say that you're offered a member of welfare staff to stay on site but you refuse and knowingly retain responsibility for any situation that occurred over that period. What do you say to that? No, absolutely not. No, I mean, that's, that's just, no. <laughs> I didn't refuse the help. It was just the help that was being offered was so remote. It was simply useless. Right. Time to translate a bit of Christchurch jargon. Censors are not thought police who strike out lines from students' letters home. Well, I guess that would be emails now, letters in my day. No, these lecturers are paid to take on additional responsibilities for a few years and oversee the general running of the college, including student welfare. 
these were the people that Martin says he couldn't get hold of, whereas Christchurch insists the dean should have known that he was in charge. Of course, I'm having to deal with all the media. The story of the young, talented student stabbing a man at Christchurch made national headlines. I was not surprised. To me, it seemed inevitable that something like this would would eventually happen. That's Stephen DeLay, the postgraduate student we met in part one. He'd felt for some time the student culture at Christchurch was a little out of control. You have to remember that even though these students are young, they are adults and they're making their own decisions. And so in a certain respect, there's nothing that Martin or anybody else could have done, I don't think, at that moment to stop it. I think what had happened is that there's a sort of train that left the station and it eventually derailed. The young man who was stabbed sustained only minor injuries, thank goodness. But the case did go to trial and the young woman at the heart of it was found guilty of unlawful wounding. It was another story Christchurch and Martin could have done without. I think he probably saw the situation as a kind of opportunity to begin addressing some of the kind of systematic issues at the college as far as discipline and and student life that had, had triggered the event in question. Stephen's right. Martin was determined that the next time there was an emergency, there would be, in his mind, effective procedures already in place. He believed the best place to start was with the job descriptions for the censors. It doesn't sound controversial, but it was. The row would spiral into a wider dispute that would cost the college, which, remember, is a charity, millions. And yes, it did begin with job descriptions, which sounds ridiculous, like a row between a couple over who does the dishes ending up in the divorce courts. But let's return to that winter. It's now 2017, and Martin is looking into the censor's job descriptions. Actually, he was looking for them. At the point of January 2017, no job descriptions that anybody could lay their hands on for that described what these extremely significant roles were for the censors. They just didn't exist. Eventually, they did say, oh, we've lost them. We did have them, but we've lost them. Christchurch told me there has always been a description of the censors' roles in the college bylaws. But Martin wanted something more practical, something more detailed. So he went to Christchurch's governing body to put forward a plan. A plan to expand and rewrite the roles to full job descriptions. I had no idea at the time that they would be fundamentally opposed and hostile to producing job descriptions. They just didn't want them to happen. They regarded that as a sort of modern intrusion. I certainly wasn't impressed with them, but I was trying to work with them. When Martin says they, he isn't talking about the whole governing body of 65 or so academics. He's actually talking about a small group of people, not even the censors at the time, but a huddle of senior academics, most of whom had previously served as Christchurch censors. They were ex-censors. Ex in theory. The reality, as I discovered, is that they were meeting all the time, largely to do with keeping the cathedral in its place, the dean in his or her place, and making sure that the college ran according to what they wanted. They were, in effect, like a sort of politburo, 
running things behind the scenes. When I hear Martin say this, I think comparing the ex-censors to the Soviet Politburo is pretty over the top. But Martin wasn't the only person who mentioned it. I spoke to Peter MacDonald. If you remember from part one, he's at Christchurch, he's an English professor, and he's on the governing body. And Peter also believes this shadowy group exists. Meetings of people who have been censors do take place. I believe it is maintained with great earnestness in various quarters that there is no such committee. It would be true in the sense that the bylaws, the statutes and bylaws, provide for no such committee. There's no doubt in my mind that ex-censors meet and didn't want to be accountable to their colleagues, but a bit like a mafia in certain parts of the world, it doesn't matter what government you have, behind the scenes, this group are running quite a lot of things. They're not killing people. They're not killing people, no. They're not killing people and they're not running rackets. But they are in charge and have no accountability and no visibility and yet an enormous amount of power. So the job description fight was Martin's first bruising encounter with these ex-censors. It lasted about a year. Eventually, however, it was sorted. But just as a divorce is never really about who does the dishes, this feud wasn't really over job descriptions. It was about personalities, attitudes, about who runs the place. I asked Christchurch about the group led by the ex-censors, and this is what they say. The ex-censors are not a clandestine group, but are well-known. They have a specific role in nominating the next censor. And the idea that any small group could unduly influence the entire governing body is unrealistic. The college's words are being voiced by a producer. The campaign by Dr Percy and his supporters has been fuelled by information, some selective, some false, and some appropriated from leaked documents, letters and emails, and knitted into a narrative that has been at best distorted and one-sided, and at worst, untrue. So whose narrative? Whose truth? When I look back at the job description fight, the conclusion I come to is that Martin didn't realise how seriously he'd ruffled feathers. And perhaps, for the first time, his colleagues were getting the measure of the man that they'd hired... Then Martin began a new battle, and it was to do with pay. Martin was earning £90,000 a year and living free of charge in the deanery. There wasn't a problem with salary. I think the difficulty was that, for example, compared to other heads of house, this was just falling further and further south down the, the kind of league table of, of pay. And it's one of the richest colleges in Oxford, but you're actually paying somewhere in the bottom quarter percentile of the going rate for heads of house. This is a decision that needs justification and it needs to be open, transparent and honest. The pay dispute dragged on for months. There was endless to and fro in meetings and in really long email chains. At one point, 
the governing body contacted Christchurch's regulator, the Charity Commission, alleging that Martin had acted in a threatening manner. Peter MacDonald believes this was the moment that some of his colleagues had had enough. What strikes me as a plausible narrative, which is that a number of ex-censors had decided that Martin Percy was not up to the job and were, I suppose, trying their, their best to figure out ways in which he could be encouraged to leave. That's where I see it coming from. That is to say, it was decided at the shadow government level. A small group of people decided that it was time for me to go. The first hint to me, I mean, I, I, you know, you hear sort of odd things, don't you, from time to time when you've been involved in an institution. That's the Reverend Angela Tilby. She was on the interview panel when Martin got the job a few years earlier. By 2018, four years later, she'd left the cathedral, but she was still in touch. The real moment for me, which was extraordinary, was that I was invited back to a dinner. This was in June. And I was sitting next to a member of the governing body who I knew really quite well, Sarah Foote. Sarah Foote is a professor of ecclesiastical history and also a priest. She says on the Christchurch website that her hobbies are wine and laughter. The previous year I'd been at her ordination and she decided over dinner to tell me that Martin was in big trouble and it was something to do with money. Now she couldn't tell me what it was. Of course, it was all hugely confidential and secret. But there was no doubt that he was in a very perilous position and that things were extremely serious. And uh, I just thought it was an extraordinary thing to just sort of say casually. But I felt in a way just certain people, members of the governing body, letting it be known that there was a massive scandal brewing to do with the dean. Unbeknownst to Angela, during that summer, the governing body had started a mediation process with Martin. The aim was to find either a new way of working together or to agree to part ways. The mediation, however, was not amicable. Don's also tried to persuade him to leave with the payoff. Martin says at one point he was visited by an ex-censor who told him he'd have to leave or there would be complaints made against him. So my wife and I went for a walk up in the nearby woods and we decided on the basis of this offer, should we say, <laughs> I would say threat, that actually I was actually not going to be removed like this. And so we went on holiday, we came back and I said I wouldn't resign. Clearly trust had broken down. Why not just leave at that point? Put very simply, I hadn't done anything wrong. So trust had broken down, but this had been entirely engineered. They had actually engineered the breakdown of trust. Christchurch told me... A number of members of governing body had decided, independently of each other, that Dr Percy should leave. While other options were explored, once Dr Percy had lost the trust of governing body, there was no option for him but to resign. They also say that Canon Professor Sarah Foote couldn't recollect that conversation at dinner with Angela and that the visit to Martin by the ex-censor never happened. Curiouser and curiouser. In autumn that year, Martin found out what those complaints actually were. I was away in South Korea giving some lectures 
and I received in the middle of the night an extremely long series of documents sent by the senior ex-censor telling me that a formal complaint had been lodged against me under the statutes. I was being accused of conduct of an immoral, scandalous or disgraceful nature under the college statutes. Christchurch's governing body had brought 27 charges against Martin. We're not talking criminal or even civil charges here, but charges under the college's internal justice system. I was suspended shortly after. I was instructed in the letter of suspension that I wasn't allowed to tell anybody that I was suspended. So I was just supposed to disappear with no explanation. According to the statutes, there is really only one way to get rid of a dean. He must be found guilty of immoral, scandalous or disgraceful conduct. The statutes require an independent internal tribunal. And Christchurch appointed a former judge to lead it. I was in the meeting where they decided they have a tribunal, but nobody mentioned how much money it would cost. What did you think of that idea? Well, I thought it was preposterous. Did you say that? I I did. I did. Peter believes some of his colleagues hoped that they would never actually have to go through with this tribunal. I think they knew it would be a nuclear button. I think that's why they were very reluctant to press it in the end. Yeah, it was only pressed because it was the only button they had. I'm Katie Prescott, The Times' technology business editor, and my job is to get under the skin of the technology, telecoms and media industries for the paper and bring the views of their top executives to readers. I can only do this thanks to the subscribers of The Times and Sunday Times. Subscribe today by visiting thetimes.co.uk forward slash stories of our times. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Let's move ahead a bit now. It's 2019 and Martin is still suspended, waiting for the tribunal, and that might not be for months and months. As all this plays out, the students were, well, getting on with normal student-y things, as normal as things ever are at Christchurch. I remember when I was going 
to one of my exams. So we have to wear special exam attire where we have to wear like a, a black uh, a black gown and like carry a mortarboard. That's Phoebe Hennell. She's 23 and has just graduated from Christchurch this summer. And some tourists asked me, can I take a photo with you? As if I was, you know, some kind of um, like exhibition at a museum. I, of course, said, like, no, thank you. No, you cannot. And just hurried to my exam. Yeah, I remember, I remember <laughs> going to my exam and exactly the same thing happening. And I was not in the mood to pose for a photograph <laughs> with a tourist. When I meet Phoebe, she's not dressed in her black gown and mortarboard. She's in a blue linen suit, her face shaded by a large flowery hat. At Oxford, Phoebe had set up an online student newspaper along with a friend. I suppose it's kind of what led me to be sitting here, you know, talking to the Times. It's called the Oxford Blue. As a student journalist, it was Phoebe's business to know what was happening and how students felt about it. It was an odd time. I remember... The Dean seems to be invisible. We never saw him around. The feeling that we got was that maybe he was in hiding or maybe was a bit uh, self-conscious, maybe a bit embarrassed about uh, about all the attention, so was not walking around. I always heard that he was walking around with his many dogs, like some kind of pack of hounds, but I never saw him and not many people did. Just to set the record straight, Martin doesn't have a pack of hounds. Just the one dog, Lyra, who's named after the heroine in Philip Pullman's Northern Lights series. But news of Martin's suspension was starting to hit the press. The Financial Times. Oxford College in turmoil over priestly pay. The Sunday Times. Reformer comes to grief in heart of stuffy Oxford. The Observer. Gossip and secrecy fuel Oxford row over suspended. People were also blogging about it and chatting in online forums, a kind of subculture almost. Remember, Martin wasn't allowed to talk publicly about what was going on. And Christchurch wasn't talking either. I remember one journalist who did ring me up and said, you know, you've been accused of immoral, scandalous and disgraceful conduct. And uh, we've just tried to phone the college and ask whether this is about paedophilia or sleeping with undergraduates or postgraduates or some other extremely serious indiscretion. And we were told by the people we spoke to in college that they couldn't comment on these allegations either way. In other words, they weren't going to confirm or deny. And when that journalist, I think, rang me up and said, this is how they're talking about you. They're allowing the silence to prosecute you. Incidentally, Christchurch say they did have discussions about whether or not to use the phrase immoral, scandalous or disgraceful, but they elected to go with what they called the language of the statutes. I had read or picked up about rumblings at Christchurch and dissatisfaction over Martin. On one of those scorching days we had in the summer, I was in central London. Hello, Alan. Hiya. Hi, how are you? Is this room OK? Yes, fine. I was here to see Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of The Guardian, and he now runs Prospect magazine. But I'm much more interested in his last job. He had been principal of Lady Margaret Hall, which is another college in Oxford. 
His title was not Dean, but from 2015 to last year, he was essentially doing the same job as Martin. It's a very complex role to explain to anyone, and I can't think of any parallel in any walk of life, really. Alan is a tall man with big shoulders. You'd think he'd be imposing, but with his ruffled hair and jeans, he really isn't at all. You go in as effectively chair of the board, but you are also chief executive, if you like. I mean, they then look to you to run the place and to be responsible for all aspects of the uh, the life of the college. You are employed by the governing body and you have no real power over them. And they have quite a lot of power over you. So it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very odd structure to explain. In March 2019, Alan went to a dinner and Martin happened to be there too. So I, d- I didn't know him very well. We, we coincided on a f- few groups and committees, but he, he seemed a, a, a bustling, busy figure. But when Alan saw him at this dinner, Martin was anything but that bustling, busy figure. I barely recognised Martin. He, he, I mean, he's not a big man at the best of times, but he had trunk uh, and he looked terribly gaunt and thin and pale and his collar size was two sizes too big for his neck. I must admit, I thought he must have cancer or, or something. I, I, I thought, this, this guy looks terrible. So I just went up to him and said, Martin, are you all right? And he said, no, I'm not. He said, do you think I could come and talk to you about it? So I said, you know, any time. The next day, Martin cycled over to Anna's residence at Lady Margaret Hall, and it all came tumbling out. Already then, it was a long and complex story. And I thought, well, you know, the only thing I, I could really help him with is, is telling that story. I mean, you know, um, if this breaks out into the open, he's going to need a bit of help because it's just him against the college. So I, I did that for him. I, I, I just wrote it down because, you know, what you've just told me would make no sense to anybody outside Oxford. It's just too complex and Byzantine. I thought, well, I, I can be your sounding board. It sounds as though you haven't got much sympathy within the college itself. I think that's what has left a lot of Martin's friends feeling just aghast at how an institution can behave in that way and how people who, in other contexts, one respects and likes and feels you know, basically good people trying to do a decent job, can get caught into this narrative which is persecutory in the end and completely inappropriate. And are you absolutely sure that Martin just wasn't overreacting or that he was telling a, telling a story to make his predicament look more dramatic? No, I don't for one moment. I'd had enough insight, I suppose, when I was there. Even at the mildest chapter meetings, one just got a hint that bullying behaviour was regarded as acceptable in the interests of the college. And I suspect that's true in a lot of these institutions, really. They, do, they don't have anybody really from outside looking at them and saying, you can't say that or you can't do that. The issue of power and who wields power is extremely important. Christchurch say there was no coup against Martin by anyone, but that the repetition of these accusations over the years has given them a familiarity that makes it easier for those with no direct knowledge to believe them. As the months passed, the stakes were getting higher for Martin. 
I became very ill. I lost a lot of weight. My weight at one point was barely above eight stone. I was petrified of losing my reputation, my house. I had nowhere else to live. The stakes were also high for Christchurch. The cost of the tribunal was sure to be huge. And the whole time, there was still an offer on the table for Martin to take or leave. I have to say, in Martin's position, I'd have left taken what I could get and left. Why didn't he? You'd have to ask him. I, I, to this day, don't quite know. I hadn't done nothing wrong and I knew that. I was beginning to feel that I had been manipulated and governing body was being manipulated. Finally, the tribunal arrived. It was June 2019, eight months on from when he was first accused. The 27 charges against him of immoral, scandalous or disgraceful conduct range from willful and persistent neglect of duty to impugning the integrity of a colleague. Was he guilty? Well, we would soon see. The tribunal was chaired by the former High Court judge, Sir Andrew Smith, and it lasted two weeks. I was on the witness stand for four days. I do remember... One, the cross-examination of an individual who, who objected to the fact that in a letter to him, I'd used the word specious, specious. And this individual said he found that insulting and demeaning. So the judge said, well, I don't think the word means that. And an argument between the prosecution witness and the judge ensued. <laughs> specious means all plausible but untrue, doesn't it? Yes, that's right. So the judge returned with a dictionary after the coffee, and said, this is what the dictionary says. To which the answer was, yes, but I don't think that's what it means. Aha. Uh -huh. When I remember reading Lewis Carroll, Humpty Dumpty once told Alice that when he used the word, it meant just what he chose it to mean. Anyway. And that was one of the 27 charges, that you'd used the word species? Yes. One by one, Smith dismissed all 27 charges. In fact, he couldn't understand how any of them amounted to immoral, scandalous or disgraceful conduct. Smith did have some criticisms of Martin, that he'd committed a minor breach and that some of his early correspondence was insistent and aggressive. But frankly, reading the long judgment, I thought the former High Court judge sometimes sounded exasperated by the whole thing. Lovely, huge relief. And at that point, I'm thinking to myself, well, we'll go back and we'll, we'll start to make things work. To celebrate, Martin threw a party. A little sort of event in his back garden in the deanery and 20 or 30 people who had sort of helped him in some way or another. And we raised a glass of champagne and it felt like, at last, this is over. The nightmare is over. But the truth was, it was barely getting started. Vindicated by the tribunal, Martin's suspension was lifted and Christchurch launched a review of how the college should be run and say they tried to find a way to restore relations with Dr Percy. But that became a little bit harder when, months later, the full report of the Smith Tribunal was leaked, revealing just how nasty the feud had been. His low-grade mind can't deal clinically and analytically, even if it can grasp the general... We are doomed with this wretched man in place. He is such a manipulative little turd. 
the little Hitler, Mrs. Dean's These are extracts from emails exchanged between ex-censors and others. I'm always ready to think the worst of him. We need a reset. Does anyone know any good poisoners? It must stop. Please, please, ex-censors, get rid of him. Just think of the Inspector Morse episode we could make when his wrinkly, withered little body is found at Osney Lock. I was a turd. I was a little Hitler. My wife had verbal diarrhoea. I mean, they were writing all of these things in emails. I remember that some of us recognised our own professors' names. Phoebe and her fellow students read the news avidly. At that time, I would say, overall, we were sympathetic towards the dean. I think there being a, such a huge gap in our knowledge about the, the whole affair, we thought, well, you know, how would we feel if we were getting all this attention on us? If like all of our colleagues were, well, I suppose, how we saw it, it was like bullying him. Martin and his supporters took the emails as evidence a shadow government was out to get Martin. I've approached the authors of the emails. None would be interviewed. Christchurch told me... We have never condoned these rude comments, which show the growing frustration of a small handful of people at the actions of Dr Percy, and that the expression of opinion in a private email is not evidence of a conspiracy. By this time... I understand Christchurch has spent well over a million pounds of charitable funds and they had still failed to oust their dean. It had meanwhile cost Martin £250,000 to defend himself. Now he wanted the money back, so he made a claim to an employment tribunal, which would also include compensation for the campaign he says was orchestrated against him. Christchurch, for their part told me they'd always been willing to discuss the paying of his legal fees. Peter MacDonald could feel that relations, once so heated, were now glacial. By this stage, aside from a few people like myself, the overwhelming sense of the governing body was that Smith was wrong, that we got the wrong result, and that whilst employment tribunal proceedings were there, he could not be functioning in all the parts of the house. When Martin was reinstated, it was understood that as the dean, he would have to step out of meetings when a conflict of interest arose because of his employment tribunal claim. That's standard practice. But otherwise, he was back to his duties as dean. So in September 2019... Martin was all set to chair his first governing body meeting in almost a year. I walked him in, in fact. I think I, I think I and a couple of others walked him in that day. What ensued at that meeting was, well, I'll let Peter talk you through it. This is a literal chair. Uh, you know, there really is a chair to sit on. You know, Martin had managed to get sat down first that particular day. Now, the shock was palpable in the room so that the person who was intending to chair the meeting, his deputy, if you like, the sense of theologia, actually said, Martin, that, you can't sit there. <laughs> That's my seat. There was a great deal of almost pushing and shoving. It didn't, not, no actual pushing and shoving, but it felt that way. You must leave now. I won't leave. Then it was, in fact, announced to the meeting that the dean must leave. Does anyone object? I remember I and another governing body 
member at that point shouted out very loudly, but eventually Martin was shuffled off in embarrassment. Christchurch, for their part, told me that... Rather than seeking reconciliation, the dean began a campaign against those he claimed had been involved in moving against him. Dr Percy was told in advance he should not have expected to chair this meeting due to conflicts of interest, and was asked to leave. Maybe it hadn't been obvious to me quite before then, but at that moment it was obvious to me that the effort to exit Martin, though it had failed, was going to continue. It set the pattern for what was to follow. Whether or not Bid was right, a year on, a new allegation against Martin changed everything. Then he said, oh, I'm just going to have to, and reached out his hand and stroked my hair for about 10 seconds. I just froze. Did you touch her hair? No. At all. Not at all. That's all next time on The Feud. You've been listening to part two of The Feud. It's reported and presented by me, Andrew Bellam. It's brought to you thanks to subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times. The series is produced by Will Rowe and Brenna Dowdorf. Production assistance and fact-checking is by Constance Kampfner, the executive producer is Lynn Jones, and the original music and sound design is by Tom Birchall.